I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abeljabar. What's up, man? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. It has been a couple of weeks. Hope you all had a happy new year. We haven't released an episode since, um, man, I think it's been like December 15th or something like that. So this might be the longest stretch ever where Mm -hmm. we have not published a podcast episode. So a stretch in, in four years. Probably crazy. in four years. And when you really think mm-hmm. about it, but I have a good reason. We have a good reason for for not uh for for holding or you know for for um taking a little bit of a hiatus and, and one of, of those game. reasons <laughs> a delay delay of game. One of those reasons is and I'll just make the announcement right now. This is uh, January 10th right now as we record this. So this will actually be released later than when we're, gonna, we're actually um, than, uh, than now. I think we're going to publish this in a week or so. But um, I have successfully planted a seed in my wife. Yeah. So I am having <laughs> a newborn come back. So, That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, yes, I'm having a baby. Um, we are expecting in late May and I couldn't be happier. Everything is healthy. Everything is good. Uh, it's, it's, it's been, it's been crazy, but obviously life's going to change when, when the baby comes. So what the goal is for me at least is to get on top of shit in terms of this podcast, because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't really be, uh, grinding till, you know, one in the morning every single night we're doing this show. So using these weeks to actually get ahead of research and get ahead of like an actual solid podcast schedule mm-hmm. is, uh, is kind of the game plan right now. So that's, that's the major reason for this hiatus is getting on top of research and getting on top of the podcast schedule. So, um, yeah, it's been real. And uh, that's, uh, that's incredible, Henry. And, 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 um, I think I speak for, the bro history crowd here when I say, you know, congratulations. And we're really excited to bring on a new baby bro historian to the world, <laughs> which well, I know that you hate that word, but we don't know. I love saying yeah. It. Yeah. Bro historian. <laughs> so, um, we don't know what the gender is. We're waiting until, you know, my, my wife actually gives birth. However, we did some weirdo, uh, very trad you know, of you. Henry. We did some weird Polish voodoo voodoo thing. Excuse me, what? <laughs> some weird Polish thing. They, they, did, they do something with like a string where they, I can't even explain it, but the, the actual <laughs> test, we didn't have a te- we didn't get the test or the test. Uh, the doctors obviously know what sex it is, but we mm-hmm. don't know. 
Um, mm. But according to this weird uh, practice, we're having a girl. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We are not having a gender reveal party. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> we are not having a gender reveal party. My, my wife said it's too white trash. Can you believe if you that? Could have a, if you could have a gender reveal party, what would it be like? Oh, man. I don't know. There's so many gender reveal parties that end up with, like, a death toll of, like, 50 people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, like, there's, there's that, so that, many like, tragic... dust that they use, it, like, kills animals or some shit like that, you know? Or like... burns down a city. The, the Great Chicago Fire was a gender reveal party. <laughs> The the Haiti earthquake was a gender reveal party. Yeah, no, it's something. It. It's, it's always we're, we're not doing that. Have you seen some of these ridiculous, like some of the horrible ones? Like not saying horrible as in corny. I mean the tragic ones where people actually die or like get hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I'm looking at I'm looking at this right now. Um, <laughs> there was one where these guys made a pipe bomb. Oh my gosh! They made a pipe bomb. And I'll just read it. When creating a device to reveal their baby's gender in a cloud of colored smoke, this Iowa couple couple built a pipe bomb. The explosion sent metal pieces flying in the air, one of which tragically hit one of the guests and killed her instantly. Jesus. Yeah, that's not... What's the deal with these elaborate gender reveal parties? You know, just have a fucking cake... Right. And don't know what color the icing is. And then you're like, oh, pink icing. We're having a girl. Yeah. Blue ice cream. We're having a boy. Why do you have to build a fucking pipe bomb? You got to make this. For your gender reveal party. Elaborate (laughs) device to to tell you. Yeah. That's crazy. Why do you need need a hydrogen bomb for your gender reveal party? Well, hey, I mean, Henry... Honestly, I, I like that you're going trad and you don't want to know uh, because technically the baby hasn't been born yet and hasn't decided what gender they are yet. So um, you're right. It's prob- it, probably exactly, best that you don't we're, misgender them before they have an opportunity to have a say in that. We're, uh, we're leaving that choice to uh, Buddha. To the baby. We, we just we call <laughs> we refer to the baby as Buddha right now. So oh really? <laughs> um, yeah, baby, baby Buddha. Um, so, OK. Yeah, gender reveal parties can get pretty can get pretty messy. I don't know if you've seen. I know you're a big fan of using these AI machines, but somebody mm-hmm. just went viral online where someone put in gender reveal party nine eleven. Oh my god! Yeah, I've seen it, and it is both disturbing and perfect at the same yeah. time. It is. It is just. It's so. I don't it's want to exactly not what you use think the word is. funny <laughs> to describe anything to do with 9-11, but yeah. it is just bizarre right. in so many ways. Um, but I digress. We need to get to the actual topic at hand. Mm-hmm. And that topic of today is a bunch of spoiled commies from Germany. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. You did most of the research on this episode, so I'll mm-hmm. let you kick it off, but... Um, I guess, you know, right now we're, we're doing a show on 1960s, 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 1970s Germany, um, where there is a, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to butcher it. 
this is this is your this is your time um what are we what are we doing the show about okay how about um how about we do a totally out of context intro for the show um and then we'll maybe piece it together by the end of it so how about this you could potentially describe today's podcast as a story about a West German radical left-wing terrorist organization that is led by a bunch of university students who base their name and their ideology like loosely around a Japanese left-wing terror group that has the same name. And that Japanese terrorist group themselves work with the popular front for the liberation of palestine the pflp which is another left-wing terrorist group and they got together in the 70s and committed an act of terror in the tel aviv airport where among many other people a bunch of puerto ricans were killed (laughs) that uh that is one way to put it we're going to talk about the origins of that group (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, it's, we're probably also going to be talking about a lot of other things like bank robberies and arson and the Shah of Iran and Nazis and plane hijackings, not 9-11, but just other plane hijackings and the global communist revolution, a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, and I know that that, that, that description feels a little bit like we just asked our Patreon members to mad lib our way into a weird clickbaity podcast script, but all of this is real. Uh, and the more I read about it, the, the the more my head exploded a little bit. And if we have enough time today, we can go into some of the context behind that very contextless intro. But I'm a- actually thinking that today, you know, we're probably just going to do some background story, figure out like what the hell are we talking about today? And then we'll we'll split this up into two episodes where the second episode would be more around the juicy, um, the juicy stuff that happens, but you kind of need this context. Otherwise it's going to sound like we're just glorifying terrorism. Um, so, you know, this, this is kind of like, we, we have to check this box first. <laughs> sure. Um, well, let me just leave this off with a quote that I found from history, historian TK Wilson. And it's a book called killing strangers. And it's all just about okay. political terrorism and mainly in the 20th and, and 21st century. And I guess what he describes this as, he has a quote that I thought was interesting. Since the, the latter 19th century, a recurrent phenomenon of Western societies has been hopeless micro-insurrections mounted against stable societies. The armed utopianisms of violently delusional, the wars of the six against 60 million. Time and time again, it is the only society dreamers and deranged who have dared to mount any kind of sustained violent challenge to the state. Indeed, in the early 21st century, armed struggle is for those who believe, against all evidence, the God will favor the small battalions. That's a really good quote. Where'd you find that? Uh, in the book called uh, "Killing Strangers." So it's a it's a book by uh, by T. K. Wilson. It's just it's about the kind of the origins of uh, like modern day terrorism. So it goes from like the mm-hmm. 60s movements to it doesn't talk about like the 19th century terrorism. It's it's like in, in Russia and stuff and and um you know different kind of nationalist societies it's more about society modern terrorism, moder- mm-hmm. modern terrorism post uh you know post world war ii leading mm-hmm. up to al-qaeda and stuff but um mm-hmm. it, it's you know it's it's interesting because we're talking about a terrorist group and it's not like in 
you know, right now we're simultaneously doing a lot of research on a, on a series on the Russian Revolution where there's a lot of political terrorism. And the political terrorism makes so much more sense because that's taking place in a society that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, quite dreary. You know, right. there's, it's a, collapsing. There, there, there's mm-hmm. a hopeless feel to it. But right. in this in this context, we're in the West. We're in Western right. Western Germany. And, you know, it's not right after World War Two. It's about 20 years or so or 15 years right. or, you know, 20, 30 they're years. Fu- they are fully into that economic miracle. Yeah, right? they're, they're doing pretty well. But yet there is this movement that still is resorting to terrorism. And it's not a large movement. It's, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fringe movement, but the fringe movement in itself is extremely, is very radical. And, and, you know, they're, they're, they, 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 they don't go away in a whimper. They last for, for, you know, I don't know, you, you know, the history of more, but they last, I think they were think disbanded, they disbanded in the nineties, right? Yeah. They disbanded like super recently. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's just, it's interesting to kind of explore these concepts of like what, it, what motivates people to like, what are the, the factors Mm-hmm. that kind of mold modern terrorists, especially in, 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 in Western societies. Yeah, I mean, honestly, today's story is so thick and it's so connected with so many other major historical tropes that I, I feel like we needed the entire month to take off to unpack this story and kind of present it to, to you guys in, in a way that's somewhat digestible. So it's going to be a little crazy. Try and keep up. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, we can just get started, I guess. All right. So since we've been researching this, um, you know, I've, I've heard of a group called the Red Army Frat Faction. So RAF. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, I've just learned about the RAF when you told me about them a couple of months ago. And you're like, hey, I want to mm-hmm. do it. Let's let's do an episode on these guys. I've been I've been you know, I've, I've been reading about them for I guess since you were in since you studied in, college, in Germany. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what do they go by? Uh, Biter Meinhof gang, the Biter. I'm. Um, Bader Meinhof gang. Bader yeah. Meinhof gang. Mm-hmm. So which? Yeah, is- I mean, it's it. Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's according to the German government, the the name for this group is the Bader Meinhof gang, um, but that's more of like a pejorative. Um, you know, the, but fun fun fact though about that word Bader Meinhof, um, the, there's a phenomenon that's named after this group. It's called the Bader Meinhof phenomenon, or more commonly, it's referred to as like frequency illusion. It's it's this like false impression that something happens more frequently than it actually does, uh, and and it often like pops up when we learn something new, right? It, it actually this actually happens to me every time I research bro history. I don't know if this happens to you, but like, have you ever learned a new word? And then suddenly you start seeing that word fucking everywhere, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's it's kind of like learning like a new character or a new historical figure. Right. Um, right now, I'm going through a lot of it with with uh, the with the the research of doing um, you know Russian Revolution stuff and World mm-hmm. War One stuff, where you like kind of find this obscure who, who you read at first, who's like a really seems like an obscure kind of philosopher or somebody who's just mm-hmm. like who the fuck is shit about this guy? I don't need to remember him. Right. And then you're and like, oh, you start well, seeing I, it everywhere. I read this. What this book influenced that guy? What Lenin was mm-hmm. super into this guy too. So you're like, oh yeah. I mean that that I think that is uh, whatever that phenomenon has. It's it's something right. That so I the phenomenon is called the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. Right? And then it comes phenomenon. from from people who like never heard of this particular group. And then they learned about them, and then suddenly, it, because they're so interconnected with so many other things, they started seeing this 
Bader Meinhof thing come up over and over and over again all the time. Um, now, if you ask them, the, the group, their name is the Red Army Faction or the Rote Army Fraktion, Rote Armee, <laughs> RAF, Rote Armee Fraktion, which is Red Army Faction. Um, you could probably take a stab at the politics behind a name like that, but um, I'd also just like to spend a few minutes just talking about the name and its significance because it's important. Um, so the, the Red Army part of the Red Army faction is obviously a call out to the global communist revolution. Right? They're, they're a left-leaning terrorist group. Um, and there were actually several, quote, Red Armies in existence uh, and coming into existence during the late 60s and 70s. So this is like a super common name for you know these types of radical left-wing groups. Very specifically, though, there was a Japanese Red Army faction, uh, which is in Japanese Sekigung Ha, and it was of particular interest to one of the founding members, um, Andreas Bader. Uh, but more more on that guy later. Um, basically, what what a lot of um, these radical left wing groups had in common was basically revolution through terrorism. So th- this ideology that. That this idea that ideology and philosophy by themselves are not enough to enact meaningful change towards far left outcomes. So whether those left leaning outcomes was socialism or Marxism or communism or some blend of all of those things, they they basically thought that you know, just having this type of left leaning ideology isn't enough. That you have to actually go out and do something, and and that doing was often violent terrorism yeah and that's kind of like the split between a lot of left-wing groups in in the late 19th century where Mm -hmm. you had different camps who were like hey um we need to use our left-wing ideology to kind of you know reform the government and then the other ones were like no that's there's no reform in the government to break the government we (laughs) we need to destroy the government Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you, you see that split i guess that's always been and i'm not an expert and uh frankly i don't enjoy i don't it's not that i'm I'm not even saying this in like a kind of a a negative connotation of being like oh fucking commies like i don't (laughs) part i'm not very interested in reading like left wing uh like or early left wing like philosophers or early socialist uh, philosophers Mm -hmm. so i don't i couldn't tell you the ins and outs between the different uh, the different, uh, you know, factions of socialism in, in, in the early days. But, but, um, yeah, I mean, I know enough to know that that, you know, that was one of the big splits between a lot of groups is like, what is your, what is your, uh, how far are you willing to take it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Exactly. And, and, you know, what's, what's interesting about this, Henry, and, and I'm not too big of it, of an expert on it either. I, I just think by, by nature of studying German, I ended up having to study a lot of these people. I mean, Karl Marx and, you know, <laughs> was a German philosopher, you know, so like you, you kind of, I kind of got exposed to that by default. But um, I think what, what's important about a lot of these groups is that while they all started off with like completely different historical contexts, their overarching goals towards like these left-leaning ideologies that's what drew them all together so much so that that they actually proactively joined one another's like 
you know, resistance movements or like, or read that as like terrorist activities. Um, and so this in a nutshell is how you get that crazy statement at the top of the show that I made, you know, where, where people from totally different places in the world from different historical contexts get together to commit terrorism together. Um, and, and it's pretty nuts how it, how it works out that way, but there's a bit more to this story than it just being a, you know, the, the RAF being a, a radical left-wing group. There's something weirdly unique about these guys, and, and, and it's weirdly German. Um, so first off, for a second here, uh, Henry, take a second to just Google their logo. Look, look for the RAF or the Red Army Faction uh, for a moment, and, and, and when you Google that, you're going to see what looks like a pretty basic logo. Uh, it's a it's a red star with the letters RAF in the middle. In the background, you're going to see a gun. And and it's pretty typical, like, commie design, <laughs> you know, like cues, right? Very, very commie graphic design, Would, wouldn't you say, Henry? Yeah, it looks like just, you know, a standard, uh, you know, militant flag. Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting about this is that the gun that they chose here isn't your typical like Kalashnikov that you would normally find, you know, with these like Marxist groups. No, that that is an HK MP5, which is a very, very German gun. Like very German. Anyway, uh, what what makes this this gun kind of significant? Oh, why why I care so much about what type of gun is on this flag is, you know, it it depends on how you're looking at this. On the one hand, some people are arguing that that the fact that they chose this very German gun was just a mistake, right? And, you know, it, it didn't matter what type of gun it is, and that's irrelevant because it's still within that, like, it's still on brand for communist design language, right? Like, the, the armed resistance against, you know, the capitalism, you know, calls for a gun on your flag. Um, but I find that argument really boring and lame. Um because if you if you dig deeper into the like this the meaning behind this gun, it's it, it kind of all plays together to make 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 this group, this particular German left-wing group, stand out a little bit. You know, when you look at all of these global communist groups that have, you know, these types of flags, they all tend to adopt a, very specifically this Kalashnikov rifle as a symbol of their revolution. You know, we've even done an episode on the Kalashnikovs, specifically that AK-47 uh, and the historical context around it. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to that episode. But the short version that you need to know for this story is that these guns are cheaply made, really reliable, and they're available to the masses. This is like a direct parallel to the, quote, proletariat class struggle, right? It's like a gun of the people, right? The MP5, on the other hand, that's about as bougie, bougie as a gun as you can get. Um, I mean, I don't know. Gun nuts will probably argue with me about this and say, oh, no, it's like, you know, the Browning whatever. I, I don't know. I'm just fucking around here. I don't know that that much about guns. But it is a pretty bougie gun. It is not a gun of the people in that respect. And its, and its history makes for a really ironic, if not hypocritical, design choice for this German RAF logo. So the, the MP5 and all the variants of it are submachine guns that are developed by a company called Heckler & Koch. Uh, and we'll come back to Heckler & Koch in a minute. But the MP5 has basically been the gun of choice for a lot of special forces around the world. 
like like the UK's special forces uses the MP5 pretty exclusively, which is pretty awesome. Um, but they they do this because they base it around the accuracy and the tolerances and the build quality of this particular weapon. It is a very finely tuned gun. Now you compare this to the Kalashnikov, which is embodied as a, like a gun of and for the people. The MP5 is made for the bourgeoisie. It's a high, you know, highly trained special operations forces of the capitalist state uses this gun. So it's the gun that shoot down rioters and stuff. It, exactly, right? It's the gun that's used to kill the people who have the AK-47s, right? Um, so back, back to Heckler & Koch, because this is important. Um, that was a company that was founded after the French dismantled the Nazi gun manufacturer Waffenfabrik Mauser AG, Right. So they made the Mauser guns. And in 1948, three former Mauser engineers, Edmund Heckler, Theodore Koch, and Alex Seidel, uh, they basically saved what they could from Mauser, and they started Heckler & Koch. So we're saying that the leftovers of a Nazi gun manufacturer got rich off of creating a fancy, high-quality gun for the West. This is literally capitalism at its finest. And... And it's ironic because this commie radical group in West Germany decides to use that gun instead of the Kalashnikov as part of their official logo. It's just ironic and oxymoronic in so many ways. Uh, it's just interesting backstory and context for like why I think this group is so unique and weird. Is it something to do with just like, is there like a strain of German nationalism in this group? You think that's why they chose a gun or is that just no, it's what quite they the were opposite. supposed to? So like, I just don't get it, right? Like the more you're going to about to find out about this group, it's like, why would they make that choice? They, they're either ridiculous, like they're dumb, which they're not. There's a lot of really smart people in this group, right? Or, or they've made a really weird choice, you know? I don't Maybe know. They, it's... it's Maybe they strange. just wanted to be distinctly German in some way. Maybe, maybe because there's. I mean, you're saying there's a lot of Red Army factions, right? There's there's a lot of different groups that go by the name Red Army faction. So right. hey, this, this is, is the, the German, German kind, right? This so let's the use German the Nazi. <laughs> let's use the formerly Nazi weapon. <laughs> um, you know, like it's it's a weird choice. Yeah, it's a very well, weird choice. Well, I think we're getting into the weeds here with guns. Let's pull this back a little bit and just talk about the. Um, you know, just what the origins of this, of this, of this gang, of this troop, um, you know, RAF or uh, Bader Meinhof. Where do they yeah, come from? For sure. Yeah, we can do that. Um, and, and thanks for <laughs> reeling me back in because we were kind of going into down the weeds there. Um, Got to go over some context before we can talk about the Bader Meinhof gang um, and like how they started. So in the 60s, um, I think. Student politics in West Germany went from mostly pacifist to violent, and its epicenter was, you know, centered around West Berlin. Um, the RAF was one of those groups that came out of that time period. Um, there were other similar groups that were formed in countries all over the world, you know, all over Europe, South America, the U.S., you know, and, and what they all had in common, ideolo you know, like ideology, bleh, ideologically, was that you know they they had a an aim to to make a revolution to overthrow capitalism right that they all had the same idea in west germany specifically though these student groups uh 
developed a strong affinity for and a shared kind of like a like a victimization with other left-leaning separatist groups including you know folks in the basque separatist region of spain uh including the plo in palestine uh, among many others um and and these groups they believed that capitalism was the same thing as fascism and imperialism and in privileged countries like west germany people that come from these left-leaning groups often tended to protest on behalf of underprivileged or up-and-coming countries places like vietnam you know who they believed were victims of aggressive capitalist wars and you know they're kind of right about that. <laughs> you know, Vietnam was kind of a, a bit of a, a shit show. A war, for a war for helicopters? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And napalm. And the, 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 war, the war for helicopters and heroin? Yeah. What, exactly. they call, what they call it? Something like that. Let's just say the motivations weren't necessarily, you know, pure. <laughs> right? Uh, so they, 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 had some, they had some points. But in, in West Germany specifically, they had a special kind of hatred towards what they called authoritarianism, right? And, and they, they use this word differently than most people would use authoritarianism. That's not like a new word for a lot of people that listen to this show. For them, authoritarianism is just any and all authority. And any and all authority is fascist, and anything that's fascist is Nazi. Remember, they're coming from post-World War II Germany, West Germany specifically, right? They have this very, very strong anti-fascist, anti-Nazi stance, right? So when you're the generation that immediately followed Hitler, you know, you're obviously going to have a strong incentive to fight against what, what they believed was a resurgence and a normalization of fascism. And the Vietnam War, in this case, was their biggest boogeyman for this argument. Well, can I ask you a question yeah. that's a little, uh, not a personal question, but just based off your experience living in Germany? Mm -hmm. How much does Nazi Germany kind of just loom over the general public? You know, is it something that people talk about frequently? Is it something that it's just like, oh, that okay, is a to... really good question that can probably warrant its own show. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I know that when I was studying in Germany, there was this phenomenon called uh, Opa war kein Nazi, which translates to uh, grandpa wasn't a Nazi. It's this like, um, almost like a denial, right? It's it's like um, folks were trying to distance themselves from the Nazi party, but the Nazi party was so prevalent and so omnipresent in everything German that it's kind of hard to avoid the fact that you were either complicit with or actively involved with the the Nazi regime. And so there's there's this whole group of people who were actively trying to suppress or repress the fact that they might have been involved with it. And then there's these groups that immediately followed, right? Like these these student movements in the 60s who outright wanted to like 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 kill their parents basically, right? Like they they had such strong aversion against everything fascist and everything authoritarian that they started a lot of these radical left-wing terrorist groups right as a as a direct result of it so when i lived in germany you know that we're talking about like 80 years later right so the the sentiments of like the generation is gone you know yeah like a lot of these people are either dead or they're old and retiring by this point you know um so like that sentiment isn't as strong but it is kind of an underpinned like footnote in everything german right you know like they they have this constant reminder that like they did a hitler <laughs> right uh and and they're a very progressive and very you know uh anti-fascist kind of a country and, and culture but at the same time there's a lot of weird things that go on and 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 this story that we're talking about today is kind of a direct offshoot of that sentiment. Well, right? well, let me let me tell you something from my personal experience. So I was in Germany, and I was in Berlin on one of the uh, one of the walking tours where I was on the the Third Reich walking tour where they take you to you know where Hitler killed himself and mm-hmm. you know different Nazi administration buildings and stuff like that. And we had you know a really good walking tour guide. He was British, and uh, you know he's like screaming and yelling like, "This is where Hitler, you know, this is where Hitler signed a decree to to send Jews into work camps." Other like just like screaming, right? And we're at one point we're in like a coffee we're in a coffee shop, and uh, like a silent coffee shop. You can just tell that there's a bunch of people there who are studying, who are working, who are on their computers. They're not they're 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 focused on their work. In the meantime, it, it, at the same time, you hear this loud mouth British guy. It's like, the, not, the, the German public allowed this to happen. The shadow of Hitler was on, like, screaming. Right, right. And I'm like, man, doesn't that kind of get to you? And this is probably, and, and if, to them, I could just tell that they heard this frequently. Because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're in a, you know, they're, this, this guy obviously went to this, this cafe Mm-hmm. on all of his tours it was like a main stop so they're just used to hearing this at all at all times and i'm like that definitely has to to, to weigh on you right just like yeah oh yeah like our ancestors were the internal For bad the guys <laughs> my grandpa my grandpa right? or my dad might have been my bu- a nazi my buddy my buddy um 
I'm, I'm actually I'm not gonna tell the story. He'll get mad at me. But <laughs> I know what um, you're talking about. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, another. So when I was in Germany, I was hanging out with this kid, and um, not a kid, but like a guy my age, another young adult. And we're drinking, we're having a fun time, and then he he's like, so I just want to let you know, we're so sorry for World War Two and World War One. <laughs> we're so we're so sorry while we're drunk. And I was like, man, stop being a little bitch. Your <laughs> your parents weren't alive during World War Two. Right. You have nothing to do with that. You have nothing right. to do with the Third Reich or the Nazi Germany or anything of that. Like, why mm. are you apologizing to me? Like, I'm not going to apologize for the fucked up things that my country does. Like, I have nothing to do with it. Right. And um, I was just like, come on, man. Like, just, this is, like, like come on. But we we, but we, we have the luxury of, like, time, right? Like, it's been decades since the Second World War, since Hitler, since Nazism. So, like, a lot of that kind of wore off. But we're talking about just, like, 20 years after, right? And and that that wound is still real fresh. I guess we should make the point that at this time there's still, you know, Nazi administrators and people who worked in the Nazi government who are politicians and who are, you know, business leaders and stuff who are still Mm -hmm. in society. So it's not like they're all gone. Right. They didn't just disappear. Right. They're still there. And that's actually very important. So like, pin pin that thought. It's like all the slave owners in, in the United States. There's no, there's no living slave owner in the United States. There's not, no guys like, well, I used to own a plantation. You right. know, it's they're all there. There's no one. There's they're no one dead. left. Um, that generation is gone. Has been gone for has been gone for generations. But in this right. case, you know, this you still in this have case a, they're still around, right? Yeah. And and it's not just foreign affairs that got these like student movements in West Germany up in arms. You know, domestically as and as you pointed out. The West German student movements experience some shit that would make any reasonable lefty student pretty angry. You know, after World War II, in particular, universities had been purged of professors who were aligned with or adjacent to the Nazi party. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Right. When when the, the you know, the allied powers come into Germany and they start reorganizing and rebuilding it. They're, you know, one of their first priorities is like, let's get rid of all these Nazi teachers. Right. Um, but the thing about that is, is that it kind of backfired because, well, everybody over the age of 40 at that time could be found guilty of being in some way associated with the Nazi party in in, in particular, the education space, because, you know, totalitarian dictatorships like the third Reich, they like to have control over what people are taught. Right. So if you remember the baby boom came after the second world war right and the baby boom became the student boom of the 60s right so so what what happened was in in west germany who's going to teach all these kids if they canned all the teachers because they were maybe nazis like who's going to teach them bunch of leftists yes but i mean the the real quagmire is that became too hard to parse out like which are the good teachers from and which ones are the nazi ones <laughs> right so invariably what ends up happening is that some nazis end up sticking around in positions of power specifically in the education space but as you pointed out you know they were all over in business in government everywhere straight up nazis <laughs> hey some of them work for us
yeah, well, yeah, that's Operation Paperclip when we came in and, you know, said, oh, it was cool if you were a Nazi, as long as you work for us and help us get rich and blow people up and stuff like that, you know? That, that's also kind of part of this story too, right? It's like Nazis are bad unless they're helpful in some way. For the hey, West. I think we should give them a pass. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? You know, it's like that and, guy from uh, the, the, the lead scientist in... Um, uh, that unit one in Japan, in Imperial Japan, the one they had the facility in Manchuria, mm-hmm. unit four twenty. I forget the number of it. It's mm-hmm. case my nine two. Uh, pe- no, people know what I'm talking about. There was right. a there was a laboratory in in Manchuria where they would, you know, they would do all these sick experiments. The Chinese people, um, you know, like freeze them and amputate them, and it was right. just like a real horror show. They would test diseases on them. And um, they took, like, a lot of the lead scientists, and they're like, oh, shit. I mean, it was horrible what you did, but you were able to pull that off. Uh, yeah, like, you, you got any up? notes on that? <laughs> can, can we you read your notes? Um, Listen, he may be a bastard, but he's our bastard now. Right, exactly. I mean, <laughs> think about, like, Werner von Braun, right? This is, like, a very famous Nazi, right? He, this, this dude was working for the Nazi party making fucking, you know, Saturn two, Saturn rockets that were used against the allies, right? And, you know, he's literal rocket science and scientist, and they built the rockets on the backs of slave labor in the camps, right? And, you know, just terrible shit surrounding this guy, but he's also he was also like the smartest fucking rocket scientist there was. So the U.S. scooped him up and said, hey, you want to, like, build us rockets to go to the moon? <laughs> and that's how we got to the moon, Right. And so the the whole idea here is that we've got all of these, you know, lefty and, and, and I think lefty is a little bit of a pejorative here. Let's ignore the fact that they're mostly leftists. We just got a bunch of students who whose parents, whose prior generation were Nazis, who, you know, is growing up in the in the shadow of, of Hitler. And they start seeing that, you know, OK, we hate Nazis, but except for the ones that are helpful to the West or to capitalism broadly, right? It's it's a very easy like thing to be pissed off about. Right? And so, you know, c- going back to education, right? A lot of these Nazis are are our teachers or are, you know, rectors or, you know, um principals things like that of these schools and, you know, places like the the more liberal or left-leaning universities like the Freie Universität Berlin, the Free University of Berlin, um, they they end up trying to mitigate this issue by setting up these constitutions, like school constitutions that allow for students to have greater say in their education and and in the decision making, and and those types of universities end up becoming a breeding ground for really heavy leftist, you know, movements like the RAF to to basically have a place to to live and thrive. Um, but that's that's the basic context behind like why does a left leaning terrorist group start in west germany yeah i mean well a lot of if you look at like the origins of of the russian revolution if you look at the first revolutionaries um in like the 1800s like prior to lenin you know even before lenin was born in some cases they all came out of the student movement Mm -hmm. in the 1860s like the movement that came you know after the emancipation of the serfs or or you know while that process was going through they all were students who you know learned 
a lot of them were like they went abroad they you know they learned all these goofy ideas from france and germany and they brought them home and they're like and, and you know that, that's kind of the origins of like i don't that's probably not the right thing to say because the revolutionary tradition in russia goes back further than that but right I think across the the world and in pretty much every left wing movement or everything that modern left, left, left wing, wing really. modern left wing populist movements they 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 have a tendency to kind of come from these student organizations and mm-hmm. you know I I don't know for the exact reason for that but you know I guess there's just I don't know I I need someone smart to explain why student movements. Um, why left wing movements like in, in, an intelligent way to ex, to explain why these why uh you know left radical left wing movements have their origins often in like these university student movements rather right. than just being like well they're just because bunch left wing marxist professor you know that's kind of like the way it's described um well, now well, i think i think this for, for for this west german thing it's pretty easy to describe right you know, there, yeah, there this is, is, a, this is easy. a very clear backlash against right wing totalitarian fascism under yeah. the Nazi party. Right. And I think and, and, and I think and the, that's... the safe places is the universities and they just end up being left wing hmm. as a direct result of coming out of Nazism. I guess that makes sense, because in a lot of in, in the case of Russia, that you, you see that in the rejection of the autocratic state of the czar. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was it was more so. It may not even just be the rejection of the the autocracy or the current system, but it, it, in a lot of cases, it just could be the rejection of the corruptness of of yep. the of the of the system, of mm-hmm. the of the swindling and the politicking of, and the unfairness of the system. So, yeah. and um, safe space. Um, they created safe space. This these are the original the origins safe of the safe space. You know? <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, Okay, so pulling pulling this back, um, who are the people who are involved in this? Who are the who are the members of the RAF? Who who is Bader Meinhof, right? Bader Meinhof. <laughs> okay, yeah, we we do a little um, little chat about them. Um, so uh, the 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 first guy, Andreas Bader, right, of Bader Meinhof. Um, this guy was born May sixth, nineteen forty three. In Munich, which makes him about two years old when World War II ended. Um, his father, uh, Dr. Bernd Philip Botter, uh, was a historian and an archivist who was taken prisoner by the Russians while he was serving in the German army during World War II. Uh, he went missing as a prisoner and was declared dead by the end of the war, which made Botter uh, here. He ends up being raised by three women, a three-woman household. So there was his mother, his grandmother, and his aunt. Uh, and uh, reportedly, and I don't know how true this is, but reportedly they they spoiled him rotten. Uh, and that might be a part of the reason why he, you know, is who he later became as an adult. Um, but, you know, even as a kid, I think his behavior and his reactions were pretty hard to predict. You know, and it caused a lot of people to either love or hate him. Um, Botter's mother herself struggled to control him and found him to be kind of like a, like a little shithead kid, you know? Um, and according to his teachers and his family, Botter came across as pretty intelligent and gifted, but he was also super volatile and he had a strong will and, and, but also he was super lazy when he wasn't interested in something. Um, 
he was known to be rebellious, difficult to control. You know, um, he would often just straight up refuse to do what he was told, <laughs> right? Or like question authority every chance he got. Um, you know, he, like I said, he he was he was seen as gifted, but he he sucked at school. Uh, he got expelled from a bunch of different schools for being either violent or undisciplined. And as a result, he never really like started a career or did any specialized training or went to any like fancy schools. Uh, instead, Botter ended up drawing and making pottery and, and other artistic things. Ceramics. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was real, real bohemian, this guy. Um, he also developed a, a passion for fast cars. Uh, which he got into the habit of stealing. That was his hobby. He liked to steal cars. So be- between the Grand Theft Auto and and also he refused to get a driver's license, uh, he, he got into a lot of trouble with traffic police. Steal cars on the Yeah, I like to drive on the Autobahn fast. Yeah, he he would like he, he reportedly he would steal a lot of Porsches. Like that was his favorite make. He he, he wanted to steal a Porsche all the time. That was that was the kind of car he liked to drive. Um, this guy sounds like a real thug. Yeah, he's he's kind of a he's kind of a, a thug. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, he's kind of a miscreant. Um, anyhow, in, in 1962 in Munich, um, Bader he participated in the Schwabing riots. The Schwabing uh, riots. Schwabing riots. Now the, these riots um, that took place in in Munich um, in June of 1962, um, they were a bit of a trip. And actually a really good example of how much of a tinderpot like uh, Germany was at the time. Uh, The basic story of this riot was that a group of young street musicians were like playing music late at night, like past the 1030 ordinance time that, you know, that the government said you can't play music after. Right. And so a city councilor and some residents called the police to get them to shut the fuck up. Um, And the cops showed up. And they tried to get the musicians to wrap things up and leave, but turned into a little bit of a fight. Um, the cops reportedly didn't do a great job at de-escalation, which makes a lot of sense because, again, remember, there's still a lot of Nazis everywhere, right? So these are like remnants of Nazis. And they, you know, are, are Nazis. Anyway, so what started off as a minor noise complaint turned into a four-day street battle between like 40,000 protesters and the police. It's pretty nuts. Like, like it, this started because some musicians didn't like turn down their music after 10:30 at night one night. And you know, it, it's and, and this doesn't happen, you know, coincidentally. This is like a, a result of like built up and pent up frustration between, you know, the authority, the the police state and and these, you know, young student protesters. Um, but Botter's experience in these Schwabing riots at, you know, he was just 19 years old at the time. It really cemented in him the idea that Germany had become a police state. At the age of 20, Botter moves from Munich to West Berlin to do what he called in quote, quote unquote, artistic education, whatever that means. Um, Berlin then and now to this day, I know you've been to Berlin, uh, Henry. Um, it's always been like this like weird liberal paradise where people go to like find themselves yeah, it's, it's super. It's super like a big weird. Williamsburg. It's giant. It's it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. It's my favorite city in Europe for sure. But it's definitely like a weird liberal bohemian paradise for sure. Yeah, and, it's 
It's super cool. It's yeah. um, it's I I enjoy Berlin a lot as well, but it's like a big giant like Brooklyn mm-hmm. town or Brooklyn neighborhood, right? And 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 Botter goes there right to like find himself, and he definitely found somebody. I'll tell you that. Um, so he ends up working as a construction worker, uh, and he also had an unsuccessful stint as a tabloid journalist. Uh, he experimented a bit with like his bisexual side in Berlin as well, which is. Totally on brand for Berlin, by the way. Um, he would put on makeup, go to gay clubs, even posed half naked for some homosexual uh, photographer. His name, he's like a big name in the in like the gay community, Herbert Tobias. Um, that part is more interesting than, than relevant. Um, he was also popular with women, but reportedly he treated them like shit and he was a bit of a chauvinist, um, which is weird. Um he also cultivated let's let's call it some non-traditional relationships while he was in Berlin. Like for example, he met um, a painter named Eleanor Michelle, uh, and she was married, and the three of them became a thruple, like a menage a trois. You mean like one of those uh, FTX things? Yeah, like there is a word that a I pan, don't know if I want to use. A pan? A, was it called pan something? A relationship? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Panominist. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I feel like a real idiot right now. I can't pronounce this word. Panoramic. Polyamorous. Polyamorous. Man, I'm so stupid. Yeah, that's the I word am, you're looking for. I, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to categorize their their relationship. It was God. a trouble. That's the easiest way to think of it, right? I have no business um, acting smart to people listening to this. Panamorist. <laughs> polyamorous. A polyamorist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Many loves. Um. Anyway, so. He was in a thruple with Eleanor Michelle, and he got her pregnant, but, you know, he's kind of a douche, and he didn't want to take care of the kid, so the husband of Eleanor, whose kid it wasn't, ends up raising the daughter. Um, so he has a kid running around on the side from his thruple. Um, eventually, uh, Botter came into the student movement scene, but he didn't immediately fit in. You know, he wasn't a university student. The dude barely had a middle school education, so he wasn't exactly, like, the best at intellectual debates. And he also really didn't fit the hippie subculture that a lot of these student movements were primarily made up of. But eventually he he does end up having a, ro- a romantic relationship with Gudrun Enselin, who's another member of this gang. Uh, and she was a Marxist smarty pants, and uh, this is how Botter starts rolling with, like, the uni kids of Berlin. So that's that's Andreas Botter of the Botter Meinhof gang. Um, Gudrun or Gudrun Enslin, she was um, born in 1940. She was three years older than Botter, um, so he he liked to swing upwards, as both of us do as well. So <laughs> no judgments there. Uh, but he, she was the fourth of seven children and grew up with a family that was like active in the Protestant church. Her father was a pastor. You know, this girl in grammar school, she got involved with the Protestant Girls Club. She eventually became the group leader and she did a lot of Bible study classes. You know, maybe you can see where I'm going with this comparison here, but she was a very sharp girl. You know, lots of book smarts, very much unlike Botter. Um, In her college years, in the early 60s, she studied educational theory and German and English at Tübingen University. And it was there that she met a guy named Bernhard um, Vesper and the two of them end up going on a on a trip to Spain together and they fell in love 
Um, Gudrun's father, though, um, was a pastor. He, he didn't approve of the relationship between Vesper and, and Enslin because apparently Vesper's father was a full-blown Nazi. Um, but nevertheless, the couple eventually got engaged and they moved to West Berlin and they studied at the Free University, uh, one of those liberal safe havens, the safe spaces that we were talking about before. <clears throat> and she ends up working for the SPD, that's the Liberal Party in Germany, for their um, 1966 parliamentary election. But you know, she, she quickly became disillusioned with that party when she found out that, like, oh, go figure, all of the parties are basically the same and there's Nazis everywhere, right? Um, so that's when she and Vesper also um, became involved with the student movements in the 1960s. And she got so involved that in 1967... Uh, she made this guy, Rudy Duchka, who at the time was the de facto spokesperson for like the West German student movement. He, she, he, she made him the godfather of her first son, Felix. Um, so that's like how deep in this student movement she was. She named the fucking leader, her kid's godparent, <laughs> right? So she, she was, she was in, um, coincidentally that same year was when she ended up meeting Botter. Uh, and this is where the relationship with Vesper went sour. Uh, to put a pin in that relationship, um, later when Enslin gets arrested uh, through all of the random terrorist shit that she ended up doing with Botter, uh, a legal battle over the custody of her son Felix ensues with Vesper. Vesper loses custody, but Enslin's in jail, so the kid ends up going to foster care, and Vesper ends up killing himself in 1971, which is a very dark backstory, but I, I kind of needed to wrap up that, like that part of the story because he'll, he's not going to show up again in the rest of the story. You know, he doesn't show up very much after, um, she and Botter start hooking up. It's like what the, uh, HBO runners did to, um, Rob Stark's wife. Yeah, exactly. In she the just, books, in the books, she doesn't die, but they just said, uh, we'll just kill her off and end your line right here <laughs> in the red wedding. It's just easier that way, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just easier. We don't want any loose ends, but we're going to leave. Yeah. A, there's there's going to be so many loose ends we're going to leave in the last season that, you know, we can't leave one now. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that was um, that was Enslin. Um, so there's a last one that I'll talk about for this group. And, and there's so this is, uh, by the way, all of the first wave or the first generation of the RAF. There's at least three generations of them. Um, but this is like the founding membership, the founding generation. And these are the three main, main people uh, when we're when you're thinking about this group. And the last one is Ulrika Meinhof. So she's the last part of the Botter Meinhof gang. Um, she kind of comes into the picture after things start getting hot with the RAF. So here's some quick background on her. And, and hopefully we'll talk more about her as we get into the actual story itself. Um, but Ulrika Meinhof was born in 34 in Oldenburg. Germany, and her parents were both art historians. Her father, uh, Werner Meinhof, was a research assistant at the State Museum for Art and uh, Cultural History. And later, he became head of the uh, Jena City Museum. Now, in 1933, uh, Meinhof's father joined the Nazi party. And in 1937, he handed over hundreds of modern works of art to the Nazi regime as, quote, degenerate art, right? He was like basically a, an art snitch for the Nazi party. That's, that's like his legacy. Um, and he died in 1940 and her mother dies a few years later, which left Meinhof to be raised by her mother's friend, Renata Remek. 
who later becomes her legal legal guardian. But you know, basically, she grows up without her parents uh, for the most part, uh, and she was also a smarty pants. Um, she ends up studying psychology, education, and German, and ends up getting funded by the German National Academic Foundation. That's like a like a fancy scholarship in Germany. It's like a like being a Rhodes Scholar or something like that. It's like very prestigious. Um, she eventually gets really interested in um, uh, like opponents of nuclear weapons, Christian pacifists, and anti-fascist theologians. These are the things that she's interested in. Um, and later she gets involved, like really involved in anti-nuclear movements. Uh, and in 1958, she founded a student working group for Germany free of nuclear weapons. <laughs> so like real, like very niche, very esoteric, very smart lady, um, but also super, mega nerd right like mega mega nerd um she also joins the sds which was the prominent student union of the time and she wrote articles on behalf of the sds's uh papers and and magazines like das argument um and she eventually gets kicked out of the university in munster for publishing an article on neo-fascism like basically exposing neo-fascism in in west germany um, so this, this is like, she's, she's that person, <laughs> like she's that leftist. She sounds um, annoying. She, she kind of <laughs> is, she, she kind of is, I'm not going to lie, but she is a super smarty pants, right? Uh, and she becomes a super important figure in the anti-nuclear movement in West Germany, uh, through her written works and in these left-leaning publications. So to, to kind of wrap things up on her, if you can think of Bader as the brawn of the group. Enslin was the brains and Meinhof would be like the mouth of the Bader Meinhof group because she loaned her, her written voice to that movement. Right. And that's what kind of got the word out about this very small, but very big, <laughs> uh, terrorist left-wing terrorist group. Uh, so I'll get into how she joined up in a bit though. Uh, but that's, that's basically what you need to know about, about Meinhof. You know, she's okay. a smarty so pants lefty lady. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. 
That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day, wherever you get your podcasts. So this is the main troop. So how does mm-hmm. how does the RAF get formed? Like what's the what how does this all come together and turn into a, you know, political terror organization? There's like a number of reasons why you could say that they came together, but most historians agree that that the one that this this one like v- state visit by the Shah of Iran to West Germany and all of the madness that ensues thereafter was basically the catalyst for this. So you're talking about when the Shah goes on like because the Shah was going on goodwill trips to um, basically like other like NATO countries or just other yeah. satellite countries of of the United States mm-hmm. um, in the '60s. I, you know, Iran and and uh, I think Berlin had a pretty high um, Persian population. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and um, in the '60s. I think it was 67, the Shah, he declared himself, he gave himself the title of King of Kings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, King of Kings, is, and he was always the king, the Shah, but like he finally coordinated his act, his his, uh, his royal uh, dictatorship as King of Kings. And, you know, that's what they used to call the old Persian emperors, like, like uh, you know, Cyrus and Xerxes and... Right. Uh, and, emperor uh, gods, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, emperor, emperor gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was like on goodwill trips to kind of uh, get international recognition of of, of those, uh, those and, all, and also like <laughs> yeah. economic. Like a lot of a lot of European countries of Western Germany had a lot of investments in in Iran, and you know Iran, uh, you know, uh, petroleum and shit like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, this is this is like a big moment because uh, when it's when the Shah goes to Germany or West Germany, I guess there's like this kind of large rejection of him because he's a dictator, he's a <laughs> yeah. dictator. You know, it's so mm-hmm. funny because like I don't know, can you imagine anyone having that type of response now with like if like Mohammed bin Salman? Yeah, I mean, it, he's he's kind of like a good, I guess a. It, be like if 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 Kim Jong Un decided to go to New York or something. No, like that, but right? Kim Jong Un is not as bad as I mean. Well, excuse me, the Shah is not as bad as Kim Jong Un. No, different but like that, this is terrorism than than the Shah. The Shah was just like kind of a corrupt autocrat. He had a secret police and stuff and tortured people and was mm-hmm. obviously an autocrat and you know could be pretty brutal. But it wasn't. I don't like, know. It, it's hard to find. It's hard to find like a like a like a true comparison to the Shah in that context. I don't. Maybe Putin. I don't know. It, it's got to be someone Putin. who's like bad, but not like evil. He's maybe like, a little bit evil. He's like <laughs> he's know? like a the, the Russian czar or something like that, or yeah. or a or a um, he's just kind of like a throwback to old monarchy you know it's he's an authoritarian he's a he's a dictator he's a he's one of those guys and and the reason why his is like a lot of these specifically these student movements didn't like him is because again remember the context here we are in post hitler germany (laughs) you know uh where a whole generation of people is, is growing up to reject fascism and here we have the Shah, who is kind of a fascist, visiting West Germany and like you know chumming around with the 
you know, the, the political bigwigs in, in West Germany. It, it's not a good look. It's, it's interesting how much, how big of a polarizing figure that he was, because there's like so many uh, dictators who are, who are allied with the West nowadays. Right. They just had the title of president, you know, right. most of them, like LCC and, and um, it's, it's, um, well, I guess MBS doesn't have a title of president, but he hasn't really come to, when he comes to crown America, it's, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he he's crown prince, but he hasn't really come on like a parade or anything like that. He'll just like meet, go on a business meeting and leave. Um, right. But yeah, so what, what exactly happens here with, with this, uh, with with the shot there's a there's from my from what i know is that there's a there was a large protest that brought that broke out right yeah yeah and it's 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 not so much just that the shah came and people protested it it was like a lot of things put together so like the shah's wife um the empress farah she was featured on the german magazine die neue review you can think of this as like like a usa today fluff piece that they wrote on the shah's wife as like a you know, get everybody excited for the Shaw's visit, you know? Well, she was German. Yeah, she's German, yeah. She's part German, or half German, I think she was, right? But, like, you know, just, like, this fluff piece on, like, the... the Roy- Kate. It's like, you know, like, you read shit about this in uh, the Roy- the British royal family. Yeah, like, like Kate. <gasps> yeah. Um, and it's super fluff piece, right? And it was full of shit. And, and, you know, a lot of these lefty student movements saw right through it, you know? Even even non lefties saw through it. They was like, "Yeah, this is bullshit," you know, this random fluff piece. And they saw like a lot of these leftist movements saw the Shah as a puppet of the United States, which he was, like truly. And and by extension, they really didn't like his wife either. Like even regardless of the fact that she was half German, right? They just saw her as just an extension of the puppet of the puppet, right? And so. In a counter article to this fluff piece that came out in Die Neue Review, Meinhof, right, Miss Smarty Pants, writes an open letter to the Empress, and I'll try and quote it because there is some pretty juicy stuff in there. So she, she wrote, You say, summers are very hot in Iran, and like most Persians, I and my family travel to the Persian Riviera on the Caspian Sea. Like most Persians, isn't that somewhat exaggerated? Most Persians are peasants with an annual income of less than $100, and for most Persian women, every second child dies, 50 out of 100, of starvation, poverty, and disease. And the children, too, those that knot the carpets in their 14-hour day, do they, too, most of them, travel to the Persian Riviera and the Caspian Sea in the summer? So, like, real snarky, (laughs) you know, Uh, but not wrong, right? Um, And uh, she also says... You know, she closes this open open letter to as we do not want to insult you, uh, but we also wish not to see the German public insulted by contributions like yours to the Neue Review. Respectfully, Ulrika Meinhof. Right. So she writes this real snarky, you know, backhanded, you know, open letter to the Shah's wife. Really, and and really, she's just like. She's just kind of like a victimless victim here, right? She's the anger isn't towards the Shah's wife, the Empress. The anger is towards the idea of and and the the craziness of like this autocratic dictator coming to a country that just literally got rid of the worst dictator of history, <laughs> you know, up to that point, you know. 
And um, that letter ends up getting blocked by Der Spiegel, which is a big publication in Germany. Um, but uh, it was independently published as a pamphlet anyway. And it starts making its rounds to a bunch of these student organizations. Um, and so on June 1st of that year, the University Student Council, they hold this like like teach-in. It's kind of like a sit-in, but it's a teach-in. It's a type of uh, protest uh, on the topic. And the topic is funny. It's Persia, model of a developing society. And I know you can't see this here, but I'm using like heavy air quotes and like like a lot of sarcasm, right? They, they were talking shit about Iran in these teach-ins. And, you know, it was dedicated to calling out the atrocities uh, of the Shah's regime. Um, and so this is happening. And on the very next day, the Shah comes to town, right? And obviously, as you pointed out, Henry, a protest starts because why not, right? Um, but there was this counter protest that was placed in front of them. And this was mainly Iranian sympathizers. So like you, like you pointed out, Henry, there was like a good amount of Iranian students that actually like lived in West Berlin. Um, and also members of the Iranian Secret Service uh, who were basically there as plants to make the Shah feel welcome in West Germany when he comes by, right? Like, you know, paid uh, cheerleaders, basically, right? Anyway, one thing leads to another, and a bunch of these student protesters start throwing shit. So eggs, plastic bags full of flour, you know, stuff like that. And none of them come anywhere close to hitting anyone because the German police had set up, set up those protesters behind these, like, metal barricades and they were pretty far away from anywhere where the Shah was going to be at the time. Um, but this is where the story starts to get a little crazy. Those pro-Iranian guys, you know, the, the Secret Service guys that are in the, uh, you know, the, the cheerleading squad, they have some nice signs that they brought with them, you know, to cheer on the Shah. And they're attached to these two-by-ones. And a two-by-one is just like a two-by-one is just like a two-by-four bridge and, and like easier to bludgeon people with. And so... They proceed to start beating the shit out of these German students with those sticks that the signs were posted on, like beating the shit out of them, bloodying them. And the German police just kind of stand by and watch it all happen. It was fucking brutal. And at a certain juncture, you know, these students were starting to get seriously injured and you know they're calling out to the german police for help and the next part is a little bit he said she said so take this with a grain of salt you know if you ask the police one of the officers gets stabbed but there's no evidence of this and or one or more of the officers start getting hit with tomatoes the police's story is admittedly really shaky here right but whatever the reason was, something gave the German police cause not to step in and like stop the Iranian protesters from bashing in the skulls of the you know the German protesters. It it actually gave them cause to unleash hell on the student protesters who were already getting their asses beat by the Iranian Secret Service, and they start beating the shit out of these students with these like rubber truncheons, like these these clubs, these rubber clubs. And then they break out the water cannons. And for anyone who has ever seen a water cannon in action on for counter protest, it's fucking brutal. 
Um, so crazy nightmare of a situation. While all this is happening, a plainclothes sergeant ends up pulling out his gun and shoots and kills a guy by the name of uh, Benno Onazorg. Fun fact about Onazorg. Onazorg's got kind of an ironic name in this context. Onazorg means no worries. So like Hakuna Matata. <laughs> um, and also this was his first ever protest and he gets shot and killed. And he was only 26 years old at the time, which is very sad. Uh, and here's the icing on the cake here, right? So we got this crazy protest, crazy response. Um water cannons, right? Um, later that day, the chief of police and the mayor end up joining the Shah at the opera. That's how the day ends. And so this madness... Oh, it's a stressful It's a stressful day. Why not, why not go relax <laughs> at the opera? No, no, they were just... They totally ignored the fact that, you know, somebody died in this protest. They were like, nah, not important. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Later that day, you know, that that's that's just what happens. Anyway, this madness kicks off literal days of student union meetings and protests and ultimately the formation of, you know, radical leftist groups like the RAF. Onizor, in this context, basically becomes the radical left's first martyr in West Germany. And that's how they were started. Now... I'm on the fence here because we could keep going, but I kind of want to leave all of the juicy details for like maybe another one. And some of the things I want to talk about are um, the shooting of Rudy Duchka, which uh, I talked about this guy before. He is the godfather of uh, Gudrun Enslin, one of the Bader-Meinhof uh, gang. Uh, so he gets shot and that that becomes a big problem. Um I want to talk about a firebombing, the the first major terrorist act that the Bader Meinhof gang pulls out. They they end up firebombing a, a department store. I want to talk about um, how they made money, which is uh, bank robberies, and how incredibly successful they were at that. Uh, I'd like to talk about, you know, their kidnapping plots. They kidnapped a lot of people, including like you know, industrialists and and politicians. I want to talk about the hijacking of a Lufthansa plane. Also, maybe talk a little bit about their their involvement with the PL, uh, PLFP, the Palestinian Liberation Front. There's a lot of really crazy things that they that they did. Now, now that we have all the context as to why and how they got started, I think that would be a fun episode to just be able to just only talk about the crazy shit that they did. Well, why don't we do that then? Why don't we end this episode and then why don't we do a follow up episode? on the rest of the shit they did <laughs> Sounds the good. crazy shit that they did as you said as you said um all right so uh do you want to wrap this episode up yep all right guys thank you for listening to another episode of bro history it's always a pleasure to have you with us for the hour and 20 minutes roughly if you want to support the show make sure that you rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support our show you can also join us on patreon and this time, Patreon won't only give you access to Slack, but it will give you access to early episodes. Chances are, this episode, this very episode, has been on a Patreon for like a week or two. Because 
we're releasing Patreon these episodes on Patreon first. So join us there. Um, you'll also get extended versions of the show, meaning that we will be recording a pre-show and as well as a post-show where we add more content, where we add, we talk about things. Um, so join us for those exclusives. And then, um, yeah, anything else to say, Danny? I'm excited to talk about some of the crazy things this RAF ended up doing. Small little gang of six people against six million. <laughs> All right. Peace, people. Peace. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.